Hello, you're listening to the Mastery Tip Map. Welcome, my name is Florian and I will guide you through the first episode of the MD podcast for this academic year. Today, we will talk about the upcoming presidential election in the United States that is scheduled to take place on next Tuesday, November 3rd, between the top candidates Donald Trump and Joe Biden. However, we will not discuss the election or its possible repercussions in general, but instead we will try to focus on some of the most important swing states that you have to look out for next Tuesday when you follow the election. But first, to freshen up your knowledge on the US election system that might have been lost over the numerous scandals that have swept over from the US in the past four years, I will briefly remind you how the system works or how it doesn't work. Despite the COVID outbreak, we've been hearing a lot about the primary process in the last couple of months that, after somebody in the Democratic Party, presented us with the rival candidate for President Donald Trump, Joe Biden, with Kamala Harris as his running mate. For some time now, both parties and candidates have been trying to charm the voters nationwide, focusing on some states in particular. But the major question remains, what will happen on the night of November 3rd? Still, we should not forget that not only the president will be elected on this night, but also parts of the Senate, which can lead to a potential reshuffling of the chamber and create new balances of power. But for now, let us just focus on the presidential election first. In the US, the president is not directly elected by the citizens, but by specially designated electors per state, a process that is enshrined in the Constitution. Although this system might appear to be absurd at a first glimpse, it was actually a compromise between a direct election and an election by the parliament. Nevertheless, today it is highly contested, especially after the close election in 2016, whether this system is still viable under modern standards. But we will probably hear more about this debate in the years to come. Under the electoral college system, each state has as many electors as it has members of congress, comprising both the senate as well as the house of representatives. With 5,500 total votes, California is the most influential state at the moment. In total, there are 538 electoral votes and a candidate needs more than half of the votes, meaning a minimum of 270 votes, to win the presidency. Generally, the votes within one state are summed up and the winner of the most votes in that state receives all electoral votes, following the winner-takes-it-all principle. Only Nebraska and Maine depart from the system and assign their electors by using a proportional system. On election night, then, finally, a winner in each state is projected, even if the actual vote by the electoral college only takes place in mid-December. As a side note, it might be interesting to know that the electors are not constitutionally bound by the state's popular vote, but many states have implemented statewide laws in this respect. This year, the Supreme Court declared that those laws are in line with the Constitution and upheld their validity. But now, let us move to the question of what a swing state, or battleground state as it is often called otherwise, actually is. Already before the election, it is quite clear by looking at the polls that the result of the popular vote in some states is quite predetermined. I will illustrate this shortly based on the last election in 2016. Take for example Wyoming. In 2016, Trump won the state with a margin of 46.3%. With such a huge margin, it is highly unlikely that Hillary Clinton could have earned more votes than Donald Trump in this state, even if she would have been campaigning there excessively. Vice versa, the same holds true for example for the District of Columbia, which the Democrats easily won with a staggering margin of 86.8% in the last election. Having in mind that candidates need to win the majority of votes in these states to receive any electoral vote at all, it would not make sense politically for the campaigns to spend their time, money and efforts on these states, if it is already predetermined that they would likely not receive any electoral vote there. Therefore, the candidates try to focus on those states where the polls indicate that the race might be going to be tight and where they hope to win over the sympathy of any undecided voter left. Florida is a prime example of a swing state that was often decisive and heavily fought for in presidential elections in the past, but we will hear more about this later. Since the winner of these battleground states, no matter the narrow margin, wins all electoral votes, it is especially important to win there. Otherwise, an interesting phenomenon could occur, as it has in 2016, 
when Hillary Clinton nationwide earned more votes but clearly lost the electoral vote. This leads us to the final question, why swing states are so important in the election process. As already noted, the electoral votes are earned according to the winner-takes-it-all principle. Therefore, it doesn't matter how close the result in a state election is, as even a candidate who receives 49% of the votes statewide might not receive a single electoral vote. I will provide you with an example from the 2016 election that shows how important swing states really are regarding the final outcome of the election. In 2016, Donald Trump won Michigan, which has 16 electoral votes by a margin of 0.2%, which represented only 10,700 votes. He also won Pennsylvania with 20 electoral votes by 0.7%, equating to 44,000 votes, and Wisconsin, which has 10 electoral votes by a slim 0.8% margin. Let us just assume now that all these state elections would have narrowly shifted towards the Democrats. This was not even unlikely, looking at how small the margin actually was. If this would have happened, Trump would have lost 46 electoral votes to Hillary Clinton. In this case, he would have ended up with 258 instead of 304 votes, and Clinton would have crossed the required threshold by receiving 273 electoral votes. The outcome, of course, would have been that Hillary Clinton would have won the presidency. So, in the end, the entire presidential election was basically decided by roughly 78,000 votes. Seen in relation to the 135.5 million votes cast nationwide in the last election, this is rather mind-blowing and shows the importance of swing states. Now that we have established why we should look at battleground states at all to understand the upcoming election, I have three collaborators with me who have researched some of the most important states. I will have short conversations with them to help us understand which demographic factors motivate the electorate in these states, how the current polls look like, and what we should look out for in the election next week. I hope you enjoy our conversations and will recognize some of our predictions and analyses in the next week's election results. So, first in a row is Stella, who has done some extensive research on Florida. What could you tell us about the state in general, where it's located, what makes up the state basically? Florida, first of all, is in the southeastern region of the U.S., so that little tail on the <laughs> on the bottom. It's bordered with Alabama and Georgia, so they are all considered the Deep South. They have a lot of big cities that are quite full of different people from different backgrounds, which is very interesting. And um, how is the electorate comprised? What are the people like? The electorate is mostly white, so 53% are white people, non, non-Hispanic white people. 25.6 is Latinx people, Hispanic. And then 16.9 it's African Americans, also with Afro-Caribbeans. 2.9 is Asian Americans, and there's a very small percentage of Native Americans. Okay, that, that's interesting. But having in mind um, this diversity, how are the current polls, or what can we expect in the election next week? Or what was the election result the last time? In the 2016 elections, Donald Trump won with 49% of the popular vote. That included a 1.2 winning margin over Hillary Clinton, who had 47.8% uh, of the vote. Florida really liked Hillary for the Democratic Party back then but really loved Trump for the Republican Party. It's been quite Republican since 1998. However, as of December 31st, there's a an increase of Democratic voters, with them being at 36.83%, and Republicans at 35.17%, which I know it's not a lot, but it could really make a difference if they... That, and that's from December 31st of 2019. So ever since then, a lot has happened, which gives us a little, just a tiny 
you know, sense of hope that <laughs> something will change. So we have a diverse state, which is still tending towards the Republicans in the past. But how are Donald Trump and Joe Biden tackling this in this election? Are they still expecting a tight race? Or does Donald Trump take Florida for granted? Because, I mean, the state has 29 electoral votes. How is the outlook for this election? Trump kind of sees it as a sure thing, the Trump administration, whereas Biden really focuses on the healthcare issues. It makes sense because, do I need to say more? It's, it's A lot of people are really seeing this, and that is very hopeful. Actually, as for the polls, I checked them yesterday, and... Biden has a 50% chance of winning this, uh, whereas they put Trump at 48. But Trump has 48, so I'm guessing that this two remaining one is for undecided or you know the blind votes mm. or whatever. Third party. Yeah, or third party. Which I... Compared to in 2016, the third party vote was a lot more important than this year. There are fewer people who are going to vote third party than last time. CBS posted a questionnaire. It's quite interesting. And they had some really interesting questions about Trump and Biden for the voters. On the question of how truthful do you think that Trump is, 43 people said yes, compared to 57 who said no. And out of the yes vote, the people that voted mostly was... The group of people that voted mostly for yes was the older generations, which, I mean, that's, I think, the, the target group for Trump in this moment. And when it was for the same question for Biden, was 47% truthful, 53% not truthful, which, I mean, politicians can be not tr truthful, I guess, but it's really interesting that they're very close to the numbers. And then on the question about why are you voting for Trump and why are you voting for Biden, 70% of the people for Trump said that mainly because I like him. And, and it's 70%. So that's a lot of people. And 21% of the people said that they, they're opposing Biden. That's why they're voting for him. And only 9% want to vote for Trump or voted for Trump because he's the Republican nominee. And for the same question for Biden, only 39% of the people said that they're mainly voting for him because they like him, whereas 45% was because they were opposing Donald Trump. And what is your own prediction for next week's election in Florida? Oh, my God. Ooh, drum roll. Um, I have no idea. It's going to be 70 to 30 for Biden. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think in that numbers. I think that it's going to be a very... Um, close call uh, for whoever wins honestly I think it's going to be in the 49 51 or something like that because it, they're really torn about this and I get that Florida has been mostly re Republican so far but now especially with everything that is happening with the pandemic it's quite disconcerting to continue voting for Trump if you've seen that he has done absolutely nothing to help you. As you said, Florida is full of retirees. I mean, yeah, come on. I think that says it all. They're, they're the people who need healthcare most in that sense. Yeah. And if you cannot have that, on that note, I would like to finish my introduction to Florida. So after we've profited from Stella's encyclopedic knowledge on Florida... <laughs> 
<laughs> we move further along the south. Ruth going to tell us more about uh, the south and the most important swing states in the south. So which states did you research and uh, what did you come up with? So I looked at kind of the proper deep south states. So Georgia, North Carolina and our favorite Texas. Yeehaw! <laughs> so all these states at the moment are very interesting because... North Carolina historically has been a swing state. It has moved between both parties, not as much as not it's not as a prominent one as the famous, I guess, Florida or Ohio. But North Carolina still kind of fluctuates between Democrat and Republican. But what's very interesting is supposedly Republican strongholds of Georgia and Texas are now becoming possible swing states in the Deep South. So in this kind of early polling that is being seen across a lot of the news channels is due to this kind of nationwide early voting. In Texas, notably, there were more than 7.1 million ballots have already been received, according to the US Election Project website. With these kind of ballots already in place and the polling they're doing, it's kind of giving a suggestion that Texas in particular is looking like Joe Biden actually has a chance at turning the red state blue. So. And why is that? Why why are these states suddenly shifting after all these years? From what I can understand, it's very particular to different groups who's moving to where. And uh, so I was like specifically senior and young voters are the kind of ones Biden's cutting into in the Deep South. So I guess unlike Florida, where senior voters are kind of a chew in like votes safe votes that trump feels he has he's losing a lot of these votes in texas and georgia specifically cutting the president's 2016 advantage in half so in north carolina biden is now at a two-point edge with seniors so it looks like points wise at the moment with the ballots that have come in they're seeing that a lot of these senior early voters are voting for biden rather than trump and are the campaigns trying to really target these shifts or how is their approach in these states? I think like the biggest approach is those these two are kind of going on is the law and order uh, topic and then the coronavirus topic. Uh, so there was like this nationwide poll, which I think is very interesting because it seems to be really you can kind of be seeing these results in the south so uh, they did what percentage of registered voters who say that democratic party could do better job dealing with x y and z so for democrats the main thing was they could do have better policies on climate change health care and coronavirus was the biggest things the democrats are kind of leading the could do better but on like things like law enforcement and criminal justice, which in the Deep South, as we've seen over the couple of months, racial tensions and a lot of injustices in terms of the law and sentencing has been a big topic of discussion. And it's really interesting to see that in terms of the party could do better, it's 52% think that the Democrat party could do better uh, of Democrats and 56% of Republican party think that, that the party could handle this issue better. So in the South, Really, this idea of law enforcement is is becoming more and more a topic they want to discuss in the upcoming election. And I think with what Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris have been saying is they've been addressing this a lot more nationally. So Trump has been trying to win over suburban women voters with this law and order kind of narrative. But 
most suburban women in Georgia and North Carolina specifically are leaning towards Biden overall because they don't really believe that Trump is trying to protect people like them when he talks about law and order. Do you think the states will swing in the end or what is your prediction for next week? Oh, to be honest, like right now as the polls stand, so in North Carolina, it's 51% to Biden and 47% to Trump. I think Biden will win North Carolina. I think he will swing that state. Georgia, I, I don't think he'll, I don't think Biden will win Georgia. I think it's too much of a stronghold. And I think also with the mail-in ballots and a lot of the kind of voter oppression we've been seeing, or I don't know if you guys have seen it too. And I think in places like Atlanta in Georgia, that's a place where they could swing the vote. If that, if everyone kind of turns out there, then, then Biden would have a chance. But in the more rural areas, <laughs> it really depends upon like if he can swing their vote on stuff like coronavirus stuff but i don't think he'll get their vote for me the most exciting one of the election of any state is going to be texas especially like even today with the results coming out closer and closer <laughs> literally new polls today showed that biden has the support of 58 of likely voters compared to 45 for trump and this result has shifted it was the same exact poll they did in september and trump then was leading by two percent still the president kind of remains competitive overall um and he has a lot of support amongst white non-educated people of the deep south the biggest thing is white educated category of people are swinging to biden when it's the non-educated which is trump's basically hanging on to <laughs> that they come out and vote in georgia I don't really, I really don't think he'll win it, but I think in Texas, if enough people also are striving for more education on the, on coronavirus, on law and order, which seem to be the topics they want to talk about, if Biden keeps telling them and keeps educating them, then he's got a chance at winning. Like, he just needs to keep, like, saying his point more because Trump isn't, that's the thing. Trump isn't talking or giving clear messages on what he wants, and that's why people aren't believing he will protect them to the same degree Biden is. So we learned from Rue that the Democrats might have a chance of flipping the South, at least in parts. And now Brandon will guide us through the Midwestern states, especially the probably most important state in this election, Pennsylvania. The whole Midwest region is really interesting, also referred to as the Rust Belt, which kind of is the, the old industrial heartland of America that has usually like voted Democrat because of all the unions. The, the blue collar workers would, would vote for the Democrats because the unions would support the Democrats as business was, was more supported by the Republican Party. But what we saw with Trump is he, in 2016, he completely flipped that. And a lot of the traditional supporters of uh, the Democrat Party supported Trump. For example, in Pennsylvania, there are a couple of, of counties that voted for Obama really hard, and then a few years later voted overwhelmingly for Trump. So if we look at the different uh, states that are there, the ones that are interesting in order of interest are Pennsylvania, Michigan, and then Wisconsin, Iowa, and Ohio. I put Ohio as the last one because It does look quite solid for Trump, and um, it's not as competitive. And additionally to that, it's not 
Like, it's got quite a few votes, but, for example, Michigan and Pennsylvania also represent a huge amount of votes. Pennsylvania is, is very big, with 20 votes. For, for the Electoral College, I mean. Yeah, well, Ohio is 18. Meaning that altogether, Ohio and Iowa are most likely going to go to Trump, while Michigan and Pennsylvania together hold more weight and are more aligned. We can't forget Wisconsin, however, which also holds around 10 votes. But also there, it's more aligned with Pennsylvania than it is with Ohio, in terms of its how it votes. It's unlikely that, for example, Iowa or Ohio will vote left of Michigan or Pennsylvania, but it is likely that Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin could vote left of Ohio and Iowa. Many say that Pennsylvania is the tipping point state and can determine who wins, not only in the Midwest, but in the presidential election as a whole. This is why so much attention is being focused on there. Speaking of polling numbers, that's something that I found very interesting going from state to state. For example, in Pennsylvania, right? Biden is up 8%, but the margin of error for those aggregated polls are on average around between 3 and 5%, which is a huge margin for error. If you look generally throughout these five states, that makes these huge leads that Biden has in a few of these less comfortable for the Democrats. I think that's also what still makes it competitive and interesting to look at. Pennsylvania, if you look at the voter blocks in, in the state, you've got the, the blue blue collar workers, you've got the city and the rural parts. And there are different different counties that at one point they, they support different people. For example, there was one county that Trump won with by twenty percent, which is huge. That's that's insane. But now it's competitive where either party could get it. The reason that's important is because if you look at the counties, they're the ones who, who can swing the election in the state, and then the state will be able to swing it in the in the general election, and one county can, can make all the difference uh, in the end. One of the things that Rue spoke about earlier is how early voting and uh, mail-in voting can affect the election. I kind of want to add two points on this. Um, first being that Pennsylvania had recently had a dispute settled in the Supreme Court, which allows it to count mailed-in ballots up to three days after the election if they were posted by the election which will have an effect because mail-in ballots are more likely to favor Biden. Early voting numbers are also another interesting point in this election because there is a, an over-favorability to one side or the other, which can be seen in the early voting, which is not representative of actual election day results. And even if you get to win by a small amount, I think Pennsylvania was only won by Trump by a few thousand votes like 10,000 votes or 15,000 votes, which isn't a lot considering it's a pretty big state, one of the biggest in, in, the, in, in the US. And yeah, all this talk of, of polls is very interesting. Now that we're coming towards the end of the discussion, I want to ask the others would be, can we trust the polls? Can we trust what we've been reading, especially with the trauma that was inflicted on, on pundits and pollsters in 2016, with them not only being extremely wrong in the US election, but also in what happened in the UK uh, with, with Brexit and all that, right? I think they're comparable. I don't think they're the same. So yeah, I think that's that would be an interesting point to talk about in the end. I think that we cannot really trust the polls in that sense because most of them are likely voters and also the numbers are not really you know big like maybe 14,000 people or so in most polls and that's not representative of the state or the county in that sense so I think that's one of the reasons why we cannot really trust the polls in that sense and I know that we are hopeful and we want things to change in that way but it all will come down to 
what happens in that day. Personally, I have the feeling that the polls might be more accurate than the last time because in 2016 it was really more people try to hide that they actually like Trump or vote for Trump, but now Trump was the president for four years and his whole cult has gained much more influence in the US. Legitimacy, yeah. So mm. basically more people, I would assume, would be willing to admit that they actually would vote for Trump. While in 2016, especially right after uh, the infamous tape was published in November, many people wouldn't dare to say it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the polls themselves weren't that off in 2016 if you look at the popular vote, right? Hillary Clinton still won more or less within the margin of error what she would have won according to the polls. But that didn't translate very well to the state, I think, to the electoral college. But I think from my view, the state by state analysis depends. Like some states are way better. People who analyze them are much better predicting them, while other ones, it's really not well developed. Uh, and I think that's probably what makes it so difficult and so volatile. But I personally think we could probably trust them more. I, I would agree with, with what you say, Flo, yeah. that we can rely more on them. But I think it's difficult for a lot of people to get their head around that statistics are just statistics and not predictive. Like if you use a relative sample, you'll get an idea more or less of what could happen, but you have no idea in reality. Yeah. yeah. And this time around with like coronavirus and, and making and kind of just the whole makeup and mechanisms of this new voting with me or not new voting, but it feels like a new style of voting that's happening in America that was different than before. And with voting stations closing and opening and, and all being very fluctuant in the mail-in ballots, the arguments with to do with that topic. What kind of gives me hope is this idea that maybe as it's going towards Democrat, the idea of carpoolings and stuff will start to increase because they're nearly there. They might want to push for that. Instead, you know, when because this is a stronghold state where they might have an opportunity to do something. And something like motivating people more to vote and discuss in the political kind of sphere there is important, not just to the, ex the election, but to American kind of politics as a whole. So mm. I think they play a good role in societal aspect, not just as statistics, but as a motivational factor as well for people. This concludes our little discussion on some of the most important battleground states for next week's election. As we have seen, even despite some research, it is not possible to clearly predict what will happen in these states in the night of November 3rd. What we can see, however, is that some states show a clear trend towards the Democrats in comparison to 2016. Who would have thought a few years ago that a candidate like Joe Biden could be competitive against a sitting Republican president in historically Republican strongholds like Texas and Georgia, for example? We have also seen that there are many factors that contribute to these developments. Some Republican voters with rather conservative ideals want to distance themselves clearly from Donald Trump's personality, his behavior, or also his sometimes too radical policies. Many voters are also not able to oversee the apparent flaws in the administration's handling of the ongoing COVID pandemic. Even if the administration already declared in an official White House memo this week that one of its accomplishments was ending the COVID crisis, most of the people are not as easily fooled, especially when new COVID cases once again spiked on Saturday. Lastly, the growing divergence between the two major parties in the US has arguably led to an increased interest in politics among the voters and many people, especially young voters, were instigated to end this presidency as early as possible by an avalanche of scandals erupting in the White House. We hope to have provided you with a little insight into the most significant battleground states for next week's election to help you recognize what we all have to look out for on the night of November 3rd. Thank you for listening. I would also like to extend my special thanks to Brandon, Rue and Stella for their help in the creation of this episode. Thank you for listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. The music in this episode was made by Stone Ocean. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud for more episodes. Hoi hoi!